this is the Worth Wellness Podcast, and I'm Erica. Like you, I'm still figuring it all out, this how to be a thriving human in the modern world thing. So join me here for regular conversations about how to remember your magic, elevate your consciousness, nourish your body from the inside out as it was intended to be, parent more gently, and love life more fully. This podcast is a place for us to play, fall, get back up, and support one another on this wild earth ride. So let's go. Welcome back to the show. Today we have a treat for you, and I say we because you are going to hear my six-month-old baby sprinkle throughout the episode. He's now my co-host. Until he fell asleep, he was very chatty and had a lot to say, and he was very tired. But Lily has so much to share with us regarding real food in pregnancy, postpartum, and breastfeeding. She's done a lot of research as a dietitian on this topic, and offer some really important insights regarding what exactly the dietary guidelines that we have today, what they actually mean, and whether or not they're sufficient for optimizing baby and mama's health in pregnancy. Not just having a live birth, because we hear this a lot that often in the mainstream medicine model, it's about having a live birth, but really we want more than that. We don't just want a live birth, we want our baby to thrive. We want health of mama and baby to be optimized. So how can we eat in such a way where that is the result and the outcome? Lily's going to also offer her perspective on whether or not it is safe to eat a diet that excludes animal foods while pregnant. So whether you're vegan or vegetarian, there's some things to be aware of in Lily's view as to potential risks or nutritional deficiencies and what you might want to do to supplement if that is a lifestyle that you have chosen for yourself. As a mama who recently went through postpartum and honestly still feel like I'm in it, <laughs> I cannot stress enough how much this information is important because the food you put into your body is what's going to give you energy to show up for your baby when you're not getting a lot of rest and it's not emphasized enough. Often we hear before, if it's your first baby, before we give birth to make a meal train, to maybe put away some freezer meals. But until you've been there, you honestly cannot know what it's going to feel like to have been up all night, been nursing all day, and have baby in arms and on you and then dinner time rolls around or even lunchtime or breakfast and you are like what in the world am I going to feed my family let alone you're not even thinking about that you're just like how am I going to get food to be able to continue to fuel this baby who's hungry all the time and so Lily actually has a lot of resources and offers her story about her postpartum experiences with her two kiddos and gives you a little bit of an idea of what you can do to prepare depending on your level of comfortability in the kitchen, what that might look like if you don't have the option to do a meal train and are doing it all yourself. She has a lot of good resources on that topic as well. Postpartum is so crazy. And like I said, if you know, you know. This is a rich episode and one that is definitely worth sharing with any of your friends who are expecting. So without any further ado, Let's get to the chat with Lily Nichols. 
Welcome, Lily, to the Worth Wellness Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am good. It's, we just, I was chatting beforehand. We just moved from the West Coast to the East Coast um, and we're in Florida. So it, we're, we're going from like rainy, cold to sunny all the time and I'm kind of loving it. So I brought you on because you are the author of Real Food for Pregnancy. And that was one of my favorite books I read while I was pregnant and continue to recommend to people who are pregnant and looking for information about what can I actually eat and not eat while I'm pregnant, because there's a lot of confusing stuff out there. And, you know, unfortunately, the baby and the mom suffers if the information, the truth isn't shared. Often there could be nutritional deficiencies and pregnancy is so taxing on the body as it is, but getting this information into women's hands is really crucial. So why did you become passionate about this work? Could you give us a little bit of your history? Sure. So I've been working in the prenatal space pretty much for my entire career as a dietitian. And I was kind of thrust into it a little bit uh, underprepared, I would say, because our training really as dietitians doesn't um, have a whole lot on prenatal. So it was really from working with clients, from the work that I was doing at the time with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, where we worked on gestational diabetes guidelines. I really saw a disconnect between what was in the guidelines, uh, what actually worked with clients. And also there just was a lot of disconnect between what I knew to be true about nutrition and like which foods are the richest in the nutrients we need for prenatal health and for a baby's development versus the foods that are so strongly pushed in the conventional guidelines. And so really that's what got me passionate about staying in this field. I mean, at the time, very specifically with the work I was doing with women with gestational diabetes, if I gave them the advice from the guidelines, a lot of times their blood sugar levels got worse. They did not improve. And that was a clear sign to me that like, okay, some, something's off here. If our intervention is not helping the problem or could be making it worse, clearly we have room to improve. Um, and that's kind of what set me off on, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to stick with this. That's, that's what inspired my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And then since then, it's been diving into ever more detail on the guidelines, how they were set. Like, okay, we tackled the carbohydrate guidelines and how those were set and how those could be improved. Let's look at protein. Let's look at fat. Let's look at vitamin B12. Let's look at this micronutrient, that mineral. Um, and you go line by line and realize that there's significant room for improvement. And there's been, you know, many years of research that has accumulated, you know, a lot of which is questioning our current recommendations that simply hasn't made it into the latest guidelines. There's usually a pretty significant gap, at least two decades for that information to get out there. So I was like, well, I can shorten that gap by, you know, teaching teaching this information, writing about this information in my books, and whether it's moms and families themselves reading it or healthcare providers, like the information's there, the citations are there. Um, 
you make the call on on what you're going to do. But I believe, you know, knowledge is power. You, if you have the information, you can make the choice on which one you feel more comfortable yeah. following. Absolutely. I, I think about, you know, the health of mom and babies, like we, we can't wait two decades for this to catch up. I think that right. that's amazing that you are trying to shorten that gap because it really, really matters. Well, we and would skip a whole generation. <laughs> exactly. It's, like, it's unacceptable. It, it is. It absolutely is. And so, yeah, that fires me up and I'm, I'm glad you're here and doing this work that is it's the next generation. It's so important. When it comes to myths and misconceptions around what we should be eating during pregnancy, could you give us some of the ones that you find to be most common and are actually most detrimental? Maybe us like in following the traditional advice, we're actually depriving our bodies and babies of of important nutrients. What's some of the top ones that come to mind? Yeah, for me, some of the top ones are, well, first of all, I think there is a focus on foods to avoid and like kind of fear of food in pregnancy um so usually like your first appointment it depends on the provider you're going with for your birth and pregnancy care right but oftentimes um you know you'll receive a a handout or a pamphlet that goes through all these foods that are suddenly unsafe because you're pregnant and and then there's very little emphasis on what you should eat instead um so first of all flipping the script where instead we can focus on you know hey these foods can improve your health during pregnancy and improve your nutrient intake i think would be really helpful but second i think we need to look really critically at the foods that are on the you supposedly need to avoid these foods lists (laughs) that were given during pregnancy Um, because it's interesting when you actually look at the data like why those foods are there and how commonly those foods actually are going to cause problems it's kind of arbitrary what's on there and what's not so typically Mm -hmm. the foods to avoid list mostly include foods that could be a risk for foodborne illness so like food poisoning they don't want you to be unnecessarily exposed to things like salmonella or listeria or E. coli or other foodborne pathogens. And that's all well and good. I mean, I agree we should be eating safer foods, but the foods they put on there versus the ones that are actually the greatest risk for getting sick and the ones most associated with foodborne illness outbreaks is is kind of arbitrary so Mm. I'll give you an example um, you know eggs that are undercooked or have a runny yolk are on the foods to avoid list that's due to a risk of salmonella the chances that an egg is contaminated with salmonella is anywhere from one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs so there's a very low chance that an egg is actually going to be contaminated And that risk is about sevenfold lower if your eggs are sourced from an organic operation. Healthier Mm. chickens have less pathogenic bacteria in their digestive tract, which is the same tract where the egg comes out, right? Um, So eggs account for like 2% of foodborne illness outbreaks in the US in total, but 46% 46% of foodborne illness outbreaks are from raw fruits and vegetables, but there's no guidance, at least in the United States. Some countries are different, but in the United States, there's no 
avoid fresh fruits and vegetables or cook them until they're mush, you know, but here we have to like overcook our eggs until the yolks are hard. Like what does that end up doing? At the end of the day, there's going to be a percentage of women who cannot stand scrambled eggs, hard boiled eggs, and they're simply not going to eat eggs or the information is not communicated clearly enough where they think eggs as a whole are just unsafe because they didn't get the nuance of, oh, it's when it's undercooked, regardless of whether that is justified or not, they might not get that extra piece of information. So they just don't eat eggs at all. And I've seen that a lot in practice where suddenly you have a woman who used to have eggs for breakfast. And now instead of that, she's having cereal or oatmeal or toast or bagel or fruit or something like that which it's all fine to have those foods however they're often consumed in fairly large portions without being counterbalanced with a significant source of protein leading to a a lot lower nutrient intake than you would get from eggs um, but definitely lower protein intake and a a bigger uh, blood sugar response to those foods. So usually it's a less nutritionally balanced diet when they cut those things out. And there are some key micronutrients that are really uh, concentrated in eggs that you would probably be lacking in if you cut them out entirely, such as choline, which is really vital for baby's brain development. So that's just one little example of like where things go awry. Um, and there's, there's many more. I talk about a lot about this in chapter four of uh, Real Food for Pregnancy, but I think it's really worth taking a critical look at why is this food on the list of things I shouldn't eat? Is it really that risky? Is it justified that I avoid this food entirely? Or is there a way to still safely consume it and get better nutrient intake and, and also be minimizing my risk of foodborne illness? And I believe there's a middle ground. Yes. All, yes to all of what you shared. And interesting, the, the fact that this paper, this handout, you know, is given often, like you said, mostly with foods to avoid. And there's not really any it's, there's nothing beyond that as far as, like you said, the why or how that even got on the list. And I think once we understand that to hear the numbers, maybe one in 30,000 eggs is like, oh, okay. I I mean, at what point are we actually more likely like get in a car accident when we're pregnant than we are to get can like food poisoning from an egg. So like, just to put it in perspective, I think with pregnancy, there is so much fear in a a lot of areas, I feel like when it comes to this kind of thing without information. And I think, like you said, once you have the information, of course, it's still up to you and your comfortability level, but the potential of nutrients that we might be missing out on and in not consuming something like an egg in pregnancy to me is well worth the risk. I also like how you want to change change the game and helping women focus on what they should be consuming and what's going to be really nutrient dense. So what are some of your top five foods you recommend to optimize both mom and baby's health in pregnancy? Yeah. So eggs are definitely on the list. I already gave a little snippet as to why Um, choline is a major factor there, but especially for people who don't eat a lot of um, animal foods otherwise, which is actually a growing segment in many countries, not just the U.S. They could be a really important source of nutrients like vitamin B12, um, omega-3 fats in the form of DHA, 
uh, iodine, selenium, um, vitamin E, a number of B vitamins. Um, so they really do have a lot of, of nutrients that are helpful for both mom and baby. Um, next on the list, I mean, there's, there's like a, you could, you could arguably make the case for just about any whole unprocessed food. Um, but I tend to focus on the most nutrient dense and the ones that have nutrients that, um, women especially are often most lacking in. So another one would be, um, liver and other organ meats. Those are arguably some of the most nutrient dense foods on the whole planet. So especially when you're looking at um, the risk of certain complications like uh, anemia, for example, which is so prevalent in pregnancy, liver really is like the perfect antidote for that because, or preventative, because you have a lot of the nutrients that all work in synergy to help with red blood cell production. So a lot of times people think it's just iron. Um, Iron supplementation often alone does not solve the problem. and sometimes is not even needed and is overused, but liver is very rich in iron, but it also has a lot of different other nutrients that work together. So you have the copper, you have vitamin A in the retinol form, you have folate, you have vitamin B12, um, you have riboflavin, you have a lot of these nutrients that all work together for red blood cell production. So before we had supplemental iron, um, back in like the early 1900s, they treated anemia with liver or liver extract. Um, so definitely livers on the list. And I know that's another one that is, um, controversial. And I do have a blog post on my website. In addition to the justifications I gave in chapter three of real food for pregnancy, um, talking all about, all about liver and its safety, um, the unnecessary concerns over iron or sorry, vitamin A, um, that's been, you know, thrust at liver. Uh, so definitely check that out. Um, another food that would be on the list would be fatty fish and seafood. So those are by far our richest sources of DHA and iodine, both of which are really crucial to baby's brain development, both maternal and, and infant thyroid health and a number of other functions. There's a lot of other things going on in, in fish and seafood as well, but those are really key. Um, if people, uh, have the option to include shellfish in their diet, um, and have accessibility to that. I mean, they even have like canned, canned oysters, canned clams, canned mussels. Those would all be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, shellfish is a particularly nutrient dense type of seafood. If you can include that, that's wonderful. Um, I don't want to keep it all focused on animal foods, but they're definitely the most nutrient dense. I think there's also certainly a place for our produce, like fruits and vegetables, um, particularly the leafy greens, um, your vitamin C rich fruits and vegetables, like your oranges and citrus, bell peppers. Um, There's a massive increase in our collagen production and turnover in our body during pregnancy. And you not only need the amino acids for collagen production, like you find in collagen rich animal foods, but you also need vitamin C um, for collagen to properly form. So that's really important for essentially all of baby's growth. Cause you're growing a brand new human being from scratch. So their skeletal system, their connective tissue, their muscles, their vascular system, their organs, even down to the transcription of their DNA. Um, there's a lot of roles for some of these little amino acids that are found in collagen, such as glycine for helping that, 
um, move smoothly and work properly. But for mom herself, you know, you're growing, your skin is stretching, your connective tissues changing and stretching, your breasts are growing, the uterus is like 800% more collagen at term that you, than you did when your uterus is pre-pregnancy and like the size of a pear. So you need the nutrients that support collagen production and collagen turnover. So those vitamin C rich fruits and vegetables coupled with those collagen rich animal foods uh, are, are really key. I'm not sure I got to five, but that, that gives you a handful of, of foods that would be really important to include in your diet. Yeah, no, that, that was great. That's a great place for folks to start with the collagen. I'm curious if you recommend, because it is such a key, a key component to so many processes happening in the body while you're growing a, a little human, do you recommend supplementation in addition to collagen rich foods? Do you feel like that's overkill? Is that necessary? What are your thoughts on that? I think Collagen supplementation certainly has its place. Um, the way in which we now consume animal foods is completely different than we did historically. So, and you may have a little glimpse of that if you've ever done like a cow or a pig share, or if you have like a hunter in your family who brings home the whole animal and you utilize like the bones to make broth or you're like slow braising roasts and whatnot. But like, when you do a cow share, for example, unless you're having them turn everything into ground beef, which assuming they include the connective tissue when they're grinding, you'd still be getting, getting the collagen. But most of the cuts you get are not tender steaks. Like most of the cuts you get, especially if the animal has been allowed to move and graze like it's designed to, there's connective tissue attaching those muscles to bones, right? Mm -hmm. and uh unless your butcher has cut off all the bones and you're not making use of any of the bones i mean this these are tough cuts of meat that require slow cooking the way we consume animal foods most people consume animal foods in the u.s now is like you go to the store and get a package of boneless skinless chicken breasts and call it a day or you get your lean steak and call it a day and hey i do that too you know it's very convenient to do it that way but you're not getting near the amount of collagen that humans would have if you were like butchering your own chicken and making chicken soup with like the head and the feet and like all the parts, right? Which we just don't do anymore. Um, I mean, I try to, but you know, not everybody does. I certainly don't have chickens, so I, I, I'm not harvesting my own animals or anything, but I do when possible support farms to get all those parts and make use of them. So if you're not doing that on the regular, there's definitely a place for collagen supplementation. I mean, you're just filling a void that our modern diets are, you know, are missing. So um, I think it's fine. I think you just simply need to, you know, be cautious with the brand you're selecting, um, see if they test for heavy metal residues. Hopefully they also test for glyphosate residues, which is a pesticide commonly used. Not all do and not all companies disclose the results on those things. But if you want to be like extra certain that it's, you know, pure and clean, I would, I would go the extra steps to check on that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because yeah, in our modern, in our modern diets, you know, I as well try, try to eat as much of the connective tissue cuts of beef and whatnot, but still in comparison to what our ancestors were doing, like it's still so much less. I know. 
So that's a good thing to think about for, for folks who maybe aren't, is not, are not getting enough of those kinds of cuts of meat, which this isn't one of the questions that I have, I was going to ask, but because we've talked about animal products so much, is in your view of it, there any way to really get adequate nutrients for mom and baby if we are not on an animal at least a diet that includes animal products. So a solely plant-based diet, is that, is there room, is there room for that? Because I, I hear you and I'm hearing it's, it feels like to me, it's become more and more of a trend and popular to uh, do vegan pregnancies. And I mean, I see all these YouTube channels about this and um, I mean, I have what I feel good eating and I was vegetarian for a long time, long before I was pregnant or even like trying to conceive but uh, my body really suffered as a result in a lot of ways. I, yeah. It took a lot of work to get my body back up to like functioning order um, or even fertile. So right. how, do you, how do you approach that? Because you're a dietitian in this modern world and probably encounter a lot of that too. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, I include a section in chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy on the challenges of a vegetarian diet in pregnancy. Um, you know, our current guidelines say that it's, perfectly fine at any life stage to eat a vegetarian or vegan diet, including pregnancy, breastfeeding, um, infancy, childhood, the whole, the whole lifespan, there's no time that they say that it's a problem. Um, and that may hold true if you are viewing nutrition from the lens that our conventional guidelines are perfect, or our DAs are all perfect, our protein guidelines are perfect. I mean, if you look closely, the, the RDA for women is 46 grams of protein a day. That's it. That's the RDA. So if we're using the RDA as a benchmark for adequacy, then of course, almost any diet is going to meet this very low um, benchmark. If you expand to some of the newer research on protein requirements, on the roles of various amino acids in pregnancy, which is actually a pretty new area of research in the last 10 or so years. If you start looking at some of the lesser acknowledged micronutrients and their role in a healthy pregnancy, choline, for example, um, DHA, iodine, selenium, again, some of those lesser amino acids, taurine, uh, vitamin K2, then you'll start to see that there can, there can be some holes um, in the diet. So, you know, I was once a vegetarian as well. I have many loved ones who are either vegetarian or vegan. I understand all of the rationale and reasons that people do not consume animal foods. Um, in the case of pregnancy, I think we have some um, you know, specific areas to kind of contend with, um, you know, some nutrients can be missing entirely and require supplementation. If you do supplement, how well is it absorbed? Are the RDAs actually accurate? So if you're getting 100% of the daily value, is that enough? With B12, we now know that the RDA should be at least triple for pregnancy and breastfeeding. Wow. With choline, we know that the intake should be at least double what the recommended amount is for pregnancy. So do we know we're getting the right amount? Like that feels a little scary to me to like supplement with something and just not know that we're getting the right amount. So then 
do you over supplement? Like, is there a risk to over supplementing? It opens up a lot of cans of worms. There can be some nutrients that aren't provided in sufficient concentrations in plant foods, um, choline, glycine, or some of those. Um, vitamin K2 is another one, unless somebody is eating a fermented soy product called natto, which is not very popular outside of Japan. There can be some nutrients that are not as well absorbed, like iron and zinc that need a little extra attention. And then there's some nutrients that can be provided in a form that isn't as well utilized by the body. So there's just a lot of considerations. Um, I think if it's a vegetarian diet that includes dairy and eggs, there's much lower uh, risks to dietary inadequacies. Um, it does get challenging. The more, the greater the number of foods that are restricted, the greater the challenges in meeting those nutrient demands. So I would recommend people check out that section in chapter three. There is, there are like a long list of, of tips to optimize a vegetarian diet, um, sort of going through like this nutrient can be an issue. Here's how to like rectify that. So like iodine, for example, like especially in those who aren't consuming eggs and dairy, you're really going to want to include seaweed on a regular basis in your diet or make sure your prenatal vitamin has sufficient amounts of iodine. Most of them don't. So like get looking at that supplement, you know, it, some of these things get really tricky to figure out. Um, even for myself, I'm very well versed in prenatal nutrition. And even I feel like, Ooh, there could be some holes here. Like what if the data comes out that we actually need X amount of this nutrient and we've been aiming for this level and it should be double or triple or quadruple. Like, Ooh, we've like set ourselves up for a problem here. Yeah. I think the trouble with supplementation too, is you've got the quality of supplements really does matter as far as what's effective and what people actually have access to, because I mean, a lot of the times you're picking, people are picking something up at the grocery store and who knows the quality of that supplement. And as you said too, there's other concerns like absorption and things like that. When you think of a, a plant-based diet where you are maybe getting some iron from beans, but it's not the same as grass-fed liver, you know, so it's going to be, it's going to be different. And I think it is just important once again, maybe even just for women to realize that, like to have the information out there, like you've provided in your book, just so that there's at least awareness around the potential risks. And I mean, I guess I would say there are risks involved in not um, consuming animal foods. And I think it's so interesting what you were sharing as well about how it's said that it's safe at any stage of the life cycle to consume a solely plant-based diet, but those numbers, the daily recommended amounts are so low like that. I didn't realize for women right now, it's like 46 grams of protein. I'm, I'm like, wow, that's, that's super low. So yeah, maybe plants can supply that in some form, but is that optimal? And I think that's the other thing when I was looking at a lot of the research and just advice around pregnancy is a lot of it's like around what is going to result in a live birth, but we really want more than that. Don't we right. like, we want more, more for the mom, more for the baby than just a live birth. And I think it's important to not only just ask the question, what's going to make it so my baby doesn't have brain defects, but like, what's going to make it so that my baby is in mom or like thriving and are, yeah. are started on the best foot possible. I think that's a better question to be asking. So yeah, which leads me to the postpartum phase. 
because that is, I mean, we, we get done with the marathon of pregnancy and labor. And I think that's for me when it first kind of hit me, like, whoa, that was a lot on my body. And I still feel even six months in not, I still feel in a lot of ways, the depletion, I still feel just my body doesn't feel the same at all. And so, you know, for mamas in that phase, what are some of the things they can do nutritionally that are really going to help support their healing process? I feel you because I started writing Real Food for Pregnancy when I was 10 months postpartum with my first baby. And um, that's why there's a really lengthy chapter on postpartum in there because I, in all of my experience with prenatal, I, I didn't, I was not well informed on postpartum recovery and nutrient repletion. I really wasn't. And thankfully, I was eating the way that I did pre-pregnancy and during pregnancy and continued to, for the most part, eat that way postpartum that I, I was able to recover okay, but I did not recognize just how significant planning ahead for postpartum was. And that is built into other cultures. We have lost sight of that for most of us in the States anyways, unless you're from like a strong cultural background where postpartum recovery is, is emphasized. Our mothers and oftentimes our grandmothers did not get that level of familial support where you have like typically an older female relative who cares for you extensively for like those first six weeks or so and arguably beyond because we used to be a little more in like village small community structures now we're all isolated in our individual little nuclear families and we don't always have that extended family support to help because truly you can't do it all or at least you can't do it all all at the same time and so traditionally the work of keeping up with the household and preparing all the food, even heating up the food to eat, like that was all done for you. And you just rested and recovered and fed your baby and received support and care. And we're really lacking in that. So I think what surprised me the most is sure on paper, I knew, okay, I'm nursing. I probably need about 500 more calories per day or whatever. You know, we don't have enough studies on human postpartum mothers to know actually what the nutritional requirements are postpartum. Even from the limited amount of data that we have, we know that it's higher than any other life stage, including pregnancy, by the way. So your nutrient demands postpartum are higher than pregnancy. But I'd wager that 500 additional calories per day is a way underestimate of what we actually need more of in that first one, two, three, four weeks postpartum. I mean, most women are just ravenously hungry and for good reason. And some of that has to do with the circumstances of your pregnancy, your labor, your birth and recovery and all of that. Um, But you can expect to need a lot more food. Um, We actually finally have a study. This was, this came out after Real Food for Pregnancy was published, but Um, We finally have a study on breastfeeding moms at three to six months postpartum, their protein requirements are higher than an average elite female athlete. 
protein requirement. You, you gotta get the protein in. And I can tell you from the second time around, not even that study wasn't out when I had my second baby um, either, (laughs) but knowing how um, easy it is to feel so depleted and how, I mean, at least for me, and I know a lot of moms are the same when you're nursing, you know, you are rapidly pulling nutrients out of your bloodstream, out of your tissues, out of your bones into this milk to nourish your baby it's just like the biological design that your body is going to put everything into this new life even at your own detriment um I just knew I needed like a lot more and I remembered how ravenously hungry I was after my first that I went really hard on the protein like all the nutrient dense protein foods animal foods mainly um and I felt fantastic my second postpartum and I did not feel depleted or at least not depleted to the level that I felt after my first. I felt like that road to recovery was really long. And after my second, I was like, wow, really focusing on getting this protein in. I felt great. <laughs> I felt great. I didn't have those blood sugar dips. I wasn't going to the pantry every two hours looking for whatever snack food I could get my hands on because I was actually nourished, deeply, deeply nourished. Um, so I think we need just a lot more attention on postpartum recovery. We have way more data on postpartum recovery and milk production and milk quality in farm animals than we do in humans, because there is a financial benefit to like the dairy industry, for example, and like the meat industry to have healthy animals that are able to reproduce in humans, I would argue there's also a financial benefit of like helping families get back on their feet and be income producing and making, you know, smart, healthy human beings that become productive members of society as well. But the payoff is not immediate. <laughs> so the uh, the study, uh, the funding is not there for a lot of those postpartum uh, nutrient studies. But what even from the limited amount of data we know now, you'd need a lot of food a lot of protein. If you're getting a lot of that protein, particularly from your animal foods, you're going to hit by default almost all of your micronutrient requirements anyways. So if you can get those things in line, you're probably set. I have a lot more to say on postpartum recovery. I mean, there's a whole chapter in Real Food for Pregnancy. I have a professional webinar on it with the Women's Health Nutrition Academy called um, Postpartum Recovery and Nutrient Repletion. There's a blog article on my website, a free resource with 50 plus recipes for preparing your freezer postpartum or outsourcing to your friends, family, community to bring you meals. But um, we really need to put a lot more focus and a lot more education out there on it. Because when really when you're pregnant, especially when when it's your first, it's just by default, all all your planning goes to caring for yourself on the day-to-day and preparing for birth. Yeah. And in especially those early first six weeks or whatnot, there is so much demand on the mother as it is just in caring for the baby that the capacity to then be preparing these really nutrient dense, like meals that are usually, if you're doing it from scratch, it's a little more time consuming. It's just, it feels so impossible. I know for me, um, I, I only had my mom there for like a week after, but that was definitely to, if I'm going to go through pregnancy and birth again, like that is where I'm going to put all my emphasis because you are starving 
and you're exhausted and you may or may not have a partner who is savvy in the kitchen. And if we're not fueled, and I mean, that's just so foundational to feeling like you can be present for your baby. And I mean, yeah, it, your baby depends on your, on your body too. So you feeling good is means your baby's going to feel calmer and better and the whole family's going to function better. So yeah, I agree with you. It's not stressed enough. And I'm curious, is that 500 extra calorie recommendation was that from an animal study or is that actually from a human study? It's from human data, um, it is. but it's okay. really only accounting for the amount of calories used and expended in the production of breast milk that an average infant consumes in a day. Hmm. So it's really only considering the the breastfeeding component and that technically only applies to the first, to the period of exclusive breastfeeding, which is the first six months. So that doesn't account for like birth, right? Sometimes birth is like, sometimes labor is like a day or many days. Sometimes labor is followed by a tear or an episiotomy. Sometimes you have a marathon labor and then there's an emergency C-section. Even a C-section on its own is like major abdominal surgery, which requires significant healing. You think about somebody who's gone through knee surgery, they're like, laid up for like six weeks and we and uh, when you have a baby you're like you have to be caring for this like heavy infant immediately (laughs) Immediately. and you can't you don't you're not getting by default you don't get uninterrupted sleep like you don't actually get rest in the way in that sort of deep rest that you get when you don't have a baby or don't have children so you really have to be literally like aiming to rest 24 seven because you're not getting uninterrupted sleep. Um, And yet you have this major thing to heal from, whether it's like the energy expenditure of like a marathon birth or this major abdominal surgery or a combination of the two um, it's significant. So, and, and I, I felt the difference with my two, my first birth was kind of a longer birth and fairly uncomplicated, but nonetheless a, a long labor and my second was a short labor, super straightforward, no tears or anything. And the difference in healing and how hungry I was, was significant in those first mm-hmm. couple of weeks too. So that plays a major role. And again, we could do all these things to prepare for this, like, you know, ideal birth. And there's so many things that um, go into how it's going to play out that you you can't really count on having a really simple, straightforward birth and therefore, uh, you know, a, a simpler recovery. Or sometimes you do have a really simple birth and then recovery throws you through a loop and you're like, wow. I mean, I was the same the first time I invited my mom for like a week. And the second time around, I was like, can you come up for like four to six weeks and just live with us? <laughs> and- and second time around, you also have a younger, like a little one running around that needs to be occupied. So it's a lot of it. The second time for me was about occupying the little one. So I could just lay, lay up and eat and nurse. Right. But she was like, really, do you really want me to be there that long? Because again, how our, our family structures have been the way that they are. My mom didn't get that level of support from her elders but you go to other places in the world or from other cultures and that is built in. There's like this 40 day built in period where you have 
again, typically an elder female relative that you either live with or who lives with you, or at the very least comes to your house every single day and takes care of everything except like nursing the baby (laughs) and the resting. Um, They make your food, they warm up your food. They might give you a massage. They might help with like abdominal binding. They help you bathe. They help, you know, hold the baby for small periods of time while you do the bare necessities for being, you know, human again, taking a shower or whatever. And then you're back to holding the baby and resting and nursing and just, you know, and it's a totally different experience when you can really lean into that rest, but it's hard. And in our culture, it's unfortunate that it's like, you have to, you know, in other cultures, it's built in. You don't even have to think about it in our culture. It's like an extra thing to add to your mental load as a pregnant mom, like, okay, now I also need to, in addition to planning for the birth and all this other stuff, (laughs) getting my, you know, mindset right and keeping track of my nutrition and working on my partnership, like all the things and preparing for, you know, what my work life is or my maternity leave, if you even get it or what that's going to look like for your business. If you run your own business now, also you need to be like, okay, I got to think about this recovery period. So funny enough, second time around for me, I did did almost no birth planning other than knowing where I was birthing and my providers and just trusting my body. And all of my emphasis went to postpartum recovery every week from like about 20 weeks on. I'm not a good like batch prepper. So what I would do is every week from 20 weeks on, I tried to get one meal in the freezer. So I'd make like a double batch of something and then freeze the other half. Um, so it was something that I could work in, even though I was like, you know, very busy with my work and my toddler at the time and all this other stuff. It's like, I think I can get one thing in the freezer each week. And then also knowing that I would have, you know, my husband there, my mom there, and I set aside some recipes. Hey, if there's like nothing to eat, make one of these things. Like you can't even be bothered when sometimes your brain power is just not there. When people are like, what do you want to eat? You're like, I don't know, just like bring something. Okay. Like you don't want to be making decisions. And honestly, when you're so hungry, it's like kind of like how you feel when you're backpacking where like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is like the most delicious thing you've ever eaten because you're so hungry. I felt like nursing was kind of like that. I don't even care what it is. Just make some food that's like very, very filling. So setting aside recipes for them was helpful. Like welcoming a meal train if you have a community around you who would support in that all of those things can be helpful and it's going to be different for different people not everybody has a deep freezer so you might have to have a different game plan like that blog post I mentioned talks through some of that Um, thinking unfortunately we're at the place where the mom really does need to be thinking through how she's going to be nourished and supported in her postpartum and do a little extra legwork ahead of time it's harder to dig yourself out of it when you're deeply in it because like you don't have the wherewithal to even know to ask, Hey, could you bring me, could you send me a meal delivery service? You don't have the brain space for that. You need other people in your community to like see that and do it for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. We could do a lot better job with postpartum care in our culture. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, that could be a whole episode in and of itself, like really, because it's, I think we've made 
the role mother mean a lot of things it doesn't actually mean a lot of tasks that other people actually could do. And yeah. I think it, that becomes really obvious when you are just freshly out of birth, you know, the birth experience and have this baby. And it's like, you, you know, maybe you were the one who cooked all the meals in your house, but is that really, is that, are you really the only one who could do that? Like, no, no, there are, there yeah. are a lot of other creative ways to get your family food uh, you know, nutritious meals. And I, I did take a look at your blog post cause I didn't set myself up, uh, as well as I could have just cause I didn't know. I, I listened, you know, I didn't know experientially what it would feel like to be yes. on the other side and yes. how, you know, important it actually would be that I had it set up and lots of support in that area. So can't stress yeah. it enough. We're both telling you, like, <laughs> go. If you, do you don't know else. until you you're in it, yeah. you know. And it's exactly. like it's just like motherhood. You can't you can't really prepare anybody for it. And and you know those comments, just you wait, are like the most unhelpful things ever. So it's hard to communicate that. I mean, but most of us have been there, and most most of the women I know who really go above and beyond preparing for postpartum it's because they felt like they underprepared the first time or just didn't know the first time so welcome to the club many of us do this and the second time around we're <laughs> know a little better going into it what it's going to be like and even still like you know every baby's different every birth is different every recovery is different so but it's better to go into it over prepared than under prepared and then not need it like you know, it's better to like have too many freezer meals and then pull them out of the freezer at like four to six months postpartum when you think like, oh, I'm out of it. Cause you know what? It's still hard at four to six months postpartum. Like the initial healing and figuring out breastfeeding and all, all that stuff is kind of like you've passed that phase, but it, you're still in the midst of, you know, some serious sleep deprivation. Your body is still recovering. I mean, full recovery, in my opinion, is a good one to two years. So, you know, it takes a while for us to build up those nutrient stores and, and get back to normal. Most definitely. Most definitely. Well, I, I want to respect your time and I know we're coming to the end of time and there's so much more on the topic of nourishing the mother and baby through the different phases that we go through. I know there's a lot on nursing and I want to say, I feel like, did you recently put out a webinar on breast milk nutrition. I feel like I saw that somewhere. If people want to go and learn more, because I know for myself, I've, I've had a lot of questions about, I mean, we get into this, you know, now our bodies, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, especially are like the sole food, like producing the sole yeah. nutrients for your baby. And like, it feels so like, how do I know they're getting enough and not just yeah. like enough food, but enough of the right nutrients? How does yeah. what I eat affect they're the nutrient quality of my milk. Like there's a lot there that I was hoping we'd have time to cover, but we won't. So that's totally yeah. fine. But do you have resources for people to go who are in that phase and not sure, not sure. and want to have more assurance yeah. that their baby's getting enough. So I, I do, there's a section in um, the fourth trimester chapter of real food for pregnancy, talking about transfer of nutrients via breast milk. And I mean, the long and the short of it is if you're doing all of these things to support recovery, it's a two birds with one stone situation. You really shouldn't have to worry that much about your breast milk nutrient content or anything like that. I mean, mm. 
on on some level, I mean, your body is always adjusting precisely what baby needs. Mm-hmm. However, if m- mom is pretty significantly depleted, you will see differences in the levels of certain micronutrients. So they will be getting this, assuming breastfeeding has been established well, and milk is being transferred appropriately, and that's something to work on with a lactation consultant, highly recommend an IBCLC if if you have that available in your area, like having that help on board early. So, you know, like the latch is good. um, You kind of have an understanding of how often babies nurse, like it's actually all the time. (laughs) I remember them saying like, Oh, the newborn nurses like eight to 12 times a day. I swear my first nurse more than that. It was just constantly attached to my boob. It was crazy. They're just constant. And it's not like a nursing session is only five minutes. Like sometimes they're a lot longer. So by the time you finish both sides, it's like, wait, we're nursing again. What? So to know that that's like normal and expected, like working with a lactation consultant on that stuff is really helpful. That's their area of specialty. So definitely think about that. My area of specialty is talking about how our nutrition can affect the micronutrient levels in milk. And so there's a little bit on that in Real Food for Pregnancy. I do have like a two-hour webinar with the Women's Health Nutrition Academy, and that's specifically looking at how are the nutrient levels affected by mom's nutrient stores or what mom is eating and that's where you can go into some of the specifics on like the micronutrient levels like if you're under consuming vitamin b12 for example say a woman with b12 deficiency or maybe somebody who doesn't eat any vitamin b12 rich foods and is not supplementing such as a woman who is vegan you see deficient levels of B12 in breast milk. So that's one that you want to be especially sure that you're supplementing with if that those situations apply to you. Or how does the vitamin A levels or the DHA levels or the choline levels or et cetera, et cetera, affect the levels in breast milk. And that's where we can get a little more particular about like optimal nourishment, right? Because mm-hmm. a mom's milk is always going to be perfectly designed for her baby. But if there is a deficiency present in the mom uh, and there's no nutrient stores to pull from to make the milk sufficient in those nutrients, I mean, you can't just fabricate nutrients out of thin air, right? (laughs) So it still may have sufficient calories, fat, protein, carbohydrates for baby, but it could have suboptimal levels of micronutrients. And that is a very controversial conversation that needs a lot of nuance, which is why it's done in a webinar geared towards professionals. Um, And it's, it's not to say that an imperfect day of eating is like going to ruin anything for your baby. Certainly not. It's not to say if you have like a, you know, too many treats one day and not enough nutrient dense foods that like the sky is falling and you should be stressed out. Absolutely not. We're talking about like, long-standing dietary preferences, long-standing deficiencies, long-standing lack of nutrients and the long-term effects on milk. Cause a lot of this stuff can be rectified when we eat more of these foods that are nutrient rich and or supplement for nutrients that we might not be consuming depending on our dietary preferences. So 
hopefully that gives you like a little more nuance because I don't want moms listening to walk away from this like oh no like all worried about their milk again that's the last place I want you to end up like in the land of oh my gosh my baby's not getting enough and and all of that um we're talking about optimizing the levels of nutrients and this really is if you're focused on your recovery and optimizing your recovery your milk is going to be optimal in nutrients for your baby as well. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have to do anything extra other than nourish yourself. I'm just giving you a reason beyond you (laughs) to to focus on it. Right. Right. No, that's fantastic because I mean, as technology improves and you hear about now there's, you know, places you can send your breast milk, breast milk to test and, you know, all of that. Not that that might not be cool data to have or whatever, but for, I, I don't want moms to come away feeling like that's essential and they have to do that in order to know their baby's getting enough. You know, I think it is right. It's really helpful to hear that if you are really focusing on your own nourishment, you you don't have to be constantly worrying about that. Nope, you you know? don't have to be constantly worrying about it. You don't have to send your milk off to one of those things. I mean, yeah. I, I have my qualms with those services in and of themselves. Um mm. having dividend like I've dove into the research on this topic. Uh so deeply that I know that there is, you know, there can be laboratory meth imperfect laboratory methods that could give you a result that's actually not accurate. So I don't mm. know how good their labs are. <laughs> your nutrient levels in your milk are going to change during the day, like also right. and the stage. Right. So if it's like really hot outside and your baby's dehydrated, your milk will have a higher water content. Um, the timing that the milk is retrieved during the feed can affect the level of like the fat content in the milk. Um, if your baby's going through like a developmental leap, like your milk can adjust levels of nutrients. Like, I don't know what their wow. thresholds are. Like, are there thresholds right. that like, do they have special thresholds for zero to one week, one to two weeks, three to six weeks? Like, cause it, the milk is different at those different time periods. So that's where I get concerned with people sending off their milk and blindly getting like, this is high, this is low. Like, I guess in the case of a really gross, meaning large deficiency, like it'd be really helpful to know that your milk is low in vitamin B12, for example, because that's really easy to fix with a supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, And the consequences of that can be very severe to a baby's neurological development. I I cover that in the webinar. However, some of these things I'm like, I I just, I don't know what their thresholds are. I don't know how good their laboratory Mm -hmm. methods are. I think a lot of it is adding to the overwhelm that new moms feel. So we kind of have to like temper this like lust for detailed information with like, Mm -hmm. but what does that actually change about your day to day? Like if you're already eating a nutrient dense diet, if you're already continuing to take your prenatal vitamin, which is actually a pretty good idea postpartum when you're nursing, especially those first six months or so, even if you're not nursing, you probably need it for replenishment, right? Um, Then you're probably going to be okay on these things. And more of it has to do with you feeling assured that your baby's getting enough. Like, are they hitting milestones? Are they having enough wet and poopy diapers? Um, per day are they gaining weight have they found their growth curve? even the growth charts are like that's another hot mess right like are is your provider using the 
like CDC standards or the WHO growth charts. You want to use the WHO ones because those are for breastfed infants. And even still, your baby's going to fluctuate a little at your growth. Like they're not always perfectly on their growth curve, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of times, like my babies were around eight pounds. They started out kind of high in the growth curve, but they were really early movers. And so they like leveled off at probably 25, 35% like on their growth curve and that's where they maintain but when they're like falling 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 at the beginning that's scary as a mom right you're like oh my god are they getting enough milk and like you have to know that like you you have to have some sort of some sense of like reassurance like okay they're hitting milestones like even though they're gaining slower they're still gaining sometimes you just have a baby that's small like we're all different sized human beings right so (laughs) There's so many things that you can like yeah. really hyper-focus on and get like extreme maternal anxiety over. And at the same time, there's like, how is that serving you? <laughs> so we have to like temper this need for more information and having all the answers with this trust and this intuitive maternal, like my baby's actually fine because most of the time, like baby's actually fine and most of the time if you're focusing on your nourishment you have nothing to worry about with uh milk quality so I hope that helps clarify a bit it does I it's really good to hear actually as a professional in your field like your perspective on it and I think data is helpful but like when we start to move too too far away from the intuitive knowing of like our baby's good like I'm good like yeah and we can't ignore stress is actual physical impact on our baby's health and on yeah. our health. Yeah. I'm, I mean, talking about transfer of, you know, hormones into breast milk, like stress, yeah. like that, that's yep. happening. And yep. so it, yeah, that's just to be factor. mindful about that as well, I think is yeah. a great reminder yeah, for new mamas because yeah. there's so much <laughs> we could be worried about. So for sure, you're worried about enough. I don't want to add to anyone's stress. Yes. I just want you to be nourished. That generally helps us be less stressed. <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much, Lily. You've Thank you. shared, you've crammed a lot of really good stuff into our conversation today. And I think it will be really helpful to mamas-to-be. So yes. thank you. You bet. Is, is there anywhere else people should go? We've talked about your website and your blog to get access to your resources. Yeah, so uh, rdn.com is my site. So there's lots of different blog articles up there. There's one on protein in pregnancy. There's one on vegetarian diets in pregnancy. There's one on uh, nutrient transfer in breast milk. There's there's a ton of stuff on the site. So check that out first. Um, I do have my books listed up there as well. There's lots of freebies on the site. I have a gestational diabetes online course for moms. I have training for health professionals via the Women's Health Nutrition Academy and the Institute for Prenatal Nutrition. So all these things are linked out on my website. As for following me personally, um, I'm most active, although not very active on Instagram. My handle is the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. So yeah, plenty of different options for um, following me there. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, great. I will be sure and link everything up in the show notes. You do have a lot of free resources if people just want to start there. So definitely check it out. Well, thank you, Lily. And I just wish you a wonderful rest of your day. Likewise, you do the same. Thanks so much.